Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Rachel Neuer is a freelance journalist out of Brooklyn, New York. And she just wrote a piece out of, essentially, her research for the last four years into trophy hunting in Africa. The piece is published in Biographic and it's called Africa's Conservation Conundrum. The trophy hunting industry in, in Africa is dying, and that should concern all of us. What, if anything, replaces it will prove critical for the protection of the continent's wildlife and wild places. It's a 7,000-word piece. I highly recommend anyone listening to this intro to stop right now, go read the piece, and then listen to this short, amazing conversation with Rachel, in which I just ask her, like, Give me a little bit of your background, where you're a hunter, and then answer the question, like, is hunting good for wildlife conservation in Africa? If you've read her piece, you probably know her answer. Enjoy. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to to non-hunters that it's it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name. My name. Is, <laughs> Does my hair look okay? It's fantastic. My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. Braxton, <laughs> you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Hmm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be and a, a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. So I, I hate to do this in front of a vacation. You look vacation-y. Where are you going? Very ready. Are you going to just say un unknown destination with well, no, no Wi-Fi? Oh, no, I'm, I'm going to Ibiza, which would not normally be my selection for a vacation destination, 
But I've got this book about MDMA coming out, and it seemed like a very apt destination given the pivotal role that Ibiza plays in MDMA's history. I'm sure there's but... a bunch of MDMA <laughs> moving around Ibiza. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'll n- neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I typically do a terrible job of introducing people, but I will not do a terrible job today because I think it's important to set the tone of who you are. Uh, so, Rachel Newer, welcome to the Blood Origins podcast. As I said via email, I uh, heard incredible things about you uh, from people that are close to my heart, close to people that know me, and uh, they couldn't have said uh, more better things about you, especially just your conduct and who you are and sort of the objective nature of what you did and how you did it. So, thank you and welcome. Thank you. That's a really kind introduction, and I'm so happy to hear that. Rachel, give us a little introduction to who you are. If nobody's heard of who Rachel Nua is. Uh. Totally fair. Um, (laughs) I wouldn't expect so. I am a freelance journalist and author. I live in Brooklyn, and I mostly cover science, and my specialties are illegal wildlife trade, ecology, and conservation. And more recently, I've added psychedelic science to the mix just to uh, take a break from animals dying. Yeah, I could imagine that the sort of animal wildlife trade is something that you focus on pangolins, right? If I if I did my research correctly, honestly, I did it all. I love uh, pangolins have a very special place in my heart. I just think they're so freaking cool. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, I wrote this book in 2018 called Poached yep. Inside the Dark World of Wildlife Trafficking, and it really deals with the whole shebang. You know, tigers, elephants, rhinos, pangolins, and then lesser known creatures like you know freshwater turtles, for example. I, I'm trying to remember, there was a guy that we had on the podcast, gosh, damn it, he's, a, he's, a, he's like a, in the screen production game out of Hollywood. Um, if I say the things that I remember from the podcast, you may remember his name. He wrote a book called, I want to say it was Extinction or something. It was a fiction book with a very non-fiction spine to it, but this guy went undercover in Indonesia, Vietnam, Vietnam, into Whoa. the tiger sort of mafia of trading tiger bones and live tigers, mm. and had to pretend that he was this just really like James Bond esque amazing stuff. And I was like, "You did that?" He's like, "Yeah, we had to drink tiger blood in a ceremony behind like closed doors. If they figured out I was this journalist, I would have died." I was just like, "Oh my god." I assume you're not talking about Carl Amon. No, 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 no. Okay. I'm going to okay. find... He's done stuff like that, too. I'm going to find the person. I'll email it to you. Yeah, um, I'd love to know. Um, yeah, I did... Su- I, could, I didn't go that hardcore, <laughs> but I did dress up as a sex worker mm. to go to King's Romans with this, this like very shady special economic zone that China controls in Laos, um, yep. but also for tiger-related stuff. Yep. I think he he might have done Laos too. I, I, I'm not remembering. It was a phenomenal podcast. I'll actually send you the podcast uh, link awesome. to. Awesome. Yeah, I'd love to listen. Um, and I apologize to the guy that I'm not remembering his name. Um, the guy. <laughs> but um, so, Rachel, we got connected because um, obviously it's been a hectic week since you released the article. Uh, but you released an article on Biographic that essentially was titled the conservation conundrum that is Africa. I messed up the yep. title, but conservation conundrum no. was in there. Exactly. Um, I, I, 
I want to set the tone a little bit for the article. Um, obviously, I we as a hunting community appreciated the effort uh, that you went through and the diligence that you went through uh, to do something around trophy hunting, it being such a polarizing topic. Um, may I, maybe I'll start here. Do you hunt yourself? That's a great question. Um, I don't hunt, but that's not necessarily because I didn't, I actively chose not to hunt. So I grew up in Mississippi. No, you didn't. Um, Where did you did. grow up in Mississippi? Biloxi, Gulf Coast. Excuse me. I have lived in Mississippi for t- <laughs> no, you have, 20 You do not sound like you're years. from Mississippi. Where? I arrived in Oxford, Mississippi in 2003 what? to do a PhD in wetland ecology and aquatic biogeochemistry. I then got married, moved my family to Starkville, Mississippi to become a professor. Starkville. I was a professor in the wildlife fisheries department in Starkville for six years. Then, as you know, it's all about who you know in this world. It gets better. I uh, was hired. I was loaned by the university to the new federal council that got born out of the BP oil spill. I was the chief scientist of the Restore Council for the first year of its existence. Wow. Stood up the restoration framework from Texas to Florida. And then I got hired by a consulting company to do the same job for the state of Mississippi. And my offices were in Gulfport, Mississippi. So listeners can't see me right now, but my mouth is hanging open. (laughs) And I lived in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi for nine years. It's a lovely town. (laughs) Love it. And I live in Memphis, Tennessee now. now? I'm in Memphis, Tennessee. Okay, great. Well, close enough though. Close enough. So yeah, that's unbelievable. Destined Um, to be. I'm a Biloxi girl. Yeah. So That's you, hilarious. You obviously, um, work, you grew up in the South. You know, hunting is a culture down here. Yeah, I grew up in the South. Um, yeah, so my grandpa hunted, but he would take my cousin out, who is a boy, to hunt, and I just was never asked. Uh, I think had I been asked, I probably would have gone. But, you know, I grew up in Mississippi, never went hunting while I was there. And then I, you know, moved on and have been kind of urbanizing since then. And it's just never come up. So obviously you grew up without very, probably neutral opinion to positive opinion about hunting or? Oh yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah. Like when my cousin would go out, he would always give me fresh venison. You know, if we went to visit like my mom's friends in the country, they'd always have fresh deer. So, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't really have strong feelings either way about hunting. It's totally fine. It's not something I do. Um, and maybe I'm getting ahead of myself in this conversation, no, no, no. but I will say that my perception of hunting in Africa uh, was colored eventually by, um, I guess, just sort of osmosis of news, of media, of headlines, and just like assumptions. Yep, yep which are typical, are, are very difficult to overcome if you don't see it for yourself. Yeah, yeah. Or just, I don't know, think about it for a second. Yeah, but yeah. think about it for a second too. I, uh, yeah. I've always said that the thing that's going to save hunting on both sides of the equation, one side being non-hunters, the other side being hunters, is mm-hmm. just thinking. Yeah, yeah. Like, okay, you hate the idea of canned hunting. So do I. But what's, what, 
have you thought about like why you hate canned hunting? Oh, it's because it's in a small enclosure. And I said, well, how big is an enclosure? Because I know 200 acre enclosures that everyone would be like, mm, that's probably a little too small. But then I also know 100,000 acre enclosures yeah. that have a high fence too. So are we talking about the same thing? And the same scale? You know, think about it. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, details matter. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, with ecology and conservation, you know, people are involved. And I've had sources tell me that, you know, once people get involved in things, it's literally more complicated than rocket science. You know, conservation solutions are not Great. easy. And yeah, those details are crucial. Well, it's, it's, it's all good and well, especially in the ecology realm. It's all good and well to have phenomenal ideas. And this is where sometimes academia falls down. And I was an academic is that you can have phenomenal ideas, but they're just practically impossible to implement. Mm -hmm. And especially in the conservation arena in Africa, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of work happening, um, trying different things. But some of them just barely work. Some of them are okay. Some of them will work in this location, but they will not work in that location. Exactly. Rachel, so when you when you started this journey on this um, <laughs> on this idea, like I'm going to tackle trophy hunting. And by the way, yeah, how many words was the article? Because it's a big boy. Yeah, thank goodness I was paid uh, per word instead of by the assignment. Um, although, given the hours I've sunk into this thing, like it was not a profitable endeavor. But at some point, it just became like. A, a mission to get this thing published. Mm -hmm. uh, it's been a four-year journey. Um, and yeah, sorry, to answer your question, it was just over 7,000 words, yeah. which is a rarity these days to have a media piece commissioned that long because people just don't have the attention span to read anymore. And Biographic commissioned it? Uh, so it was actually originally commissioned by um, a major U.S. magazine. I'm going to refrain from naming them because whatever. Sure. Um, and that was in 2019, they commissioned it. Um, it was going to be a print piece and a web piece also running long. They were really enthusiastic. Um, we went through these ups and downs of the pandemic. I managed to report the story in summer 2021 in Tanzania, which was obviously a whole thing with COVID. Mm -hmm. Um, and then right when we were getting near publication time in like early spring, 2022, a higher up editor at this magazine, maybe editors, got a hold of the piece, saw what we actually had on the page, and we're like, absolutely not. No, we're going to have to rewrite this whole thing. You've missed like crucial key facts. Um, I mean, they, they get basically accused me of like not doing my job as a journalist and missing like a whole, I don't know, side, mm -hmm. the other side, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, and I put my foot down and said, you know, I stand by my reporting. Uh, no, I didn't miss anything. I'm happy mm -hmm. to, you know, address edits, but I'm not going to rewrite this thing. Um, so we decided, well, they decided to kill the piece, which left the story homeless. And then it took about six more months to find a place that was willing to take on such a, you know, quote unquote, controversial topic. And thank goodness Biographic was the place that, you know, was brave enough literally to sure, take this on sure. and my editor was terrified of the blowback he knew he'd inevitably receive but he said you know this is such an important piece and i think we need to take a stand 
on science and facts and put this out there for people. What is biography? I actually had not, I might have seen a piece that biographic had mm-hmm. created before, but I really, that's the first time they came onto my radar. What do they typically pu- publish? Rachel? Oh, they're excellent. Um, they are funded, I believe, by the California Academy of Sciences. They have some direct link with California Academy of Sciences, but not editorial. Um, they're completely editorial independent, but they are really ecology and conservation. So for any listeners who are into those themes, um, check them out. They do great work. It's not behind a paywall. Uh, you can also syndicate their pieces. So if you know anyone who would want to republish the trophy hunting story, they can do so freely. It's really just about getting news out about wildlife and the planet. I've written for them before about, um, for example, how COVID impacted conservation in Africa um, at the height when you know there were no tourists going over there. So they do a whole expansive scope of, of stuff under that ecology conservation umbrella. Yeah, sounds amazing. Definitely have to check more of their stuff out. Please. So Rachel, you spent four years researching the piece. Obviously, you didn't spend full time no four way, years. Gosh. And I've heard, yeah. I've seen that through Twitter, like, oh my God, she spent four years and she did such a terrible job. I was what like, an idiot. Technically, yeah. she didn't spend four years on it. It just took four years of time. How many yeah. trips did you make to Africa? So for this piece, I only did the one trip, which was two weeks long. And um, I was mostly around Arusha, but I also went over to um, the Serengeti region to mm-hmm. interview people about human wildlife conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've obviously made trips to Africa before. Mm-hmm. The, what was, let me ask this. Did you, I know that you, I know that your, your answer should be what I'm about. I'll just ask the question. Did you have any preconceived expectations going into it? I know you're not supposed to. Mm, yeah, no, I mean, everybody, you know, people are like, oh, journalistic obje- objectivity, and it doesn't exist. We're all humans. Um, right. I, I try not to go in with preconceived notions, um, but inevitably you do. And inevitably, and this is the importance of field reporting, once you're there on the ground, the situation is always different from what you expect, you know, ra- yeah. whether it's joining someone on a safari or, you know, reporting on tiger bone train in Laos. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I one I guess I just was, I don't want to say confused, but maybe misinformed about what a hunt would actually entail. Like, I literally thought we'd be driving around, like shooting things out of a car, which <laughs> was not at all the case, um, you know. Well, that happens. Well, I'll be, you know, from not, a hunter perspective, yeah. it happens. Yeah. It's the truth. Um, you know, some people, that's what they like, right. you know, from a hunting perspective. Other people are like, never, you know, and then it depends on the outfit. Some outfits are like, hell no, you're not going, you're going to be right. way away from the vehicle before, because we, again, right. associations with the game and the vehicles and whatnot. Right. Well, I was definitely in the hell no camp um, in terms of the outfitters I joined, just their, um, their ethical rules and stringency about following those rules was pretty, like, breathtaking. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I guess I also wasn't prepared for sort of the monotony of the days. <laughs> like, with a lot of looking around, driving around, uh, unsuccessful stocks that took like hours. I mean, I get that it's some people's thing, but it's definitely would not be my ideal vacation, which makes it all the it's more not my impressive. Wife's e- ideal vacation either. Yeah. So I'm like, you know, bless their hearts that they're willing to fork out like a quarter of a million dollars to do this because there are not many people who would. 
Look at I don't that think... southerner coming up. Bless their yeah, hearts. Yeah, exactly. Um, from let me just ask this question from a personal visual experience. Were there lots of animals that the hunters that you saw looked at and didn't kill? Um, first of all, there just weren't lots of animals visually oh. available in Ruvu Masai, which is where I was. Um, you know, like I dropped by Serengeti National Park just for a day, like for fun on my own dime on the way and out. And you saw a shit ton of animals. Yeah, I was just like, oh, there's a cheetah, there's some lions, like they're everywhere. Um, hey. So like that's the baseline. There just aren't that many animals visible in Ruvu Masai because it's like this scrubby <laughs> bushland. Um, I joined one hunt where we spent literally three hours creeping around like the thorns and then there were clear shots that the hunter had of i think it was like eland i don't remember some kind of ungulate and <laughs> and he was like in the end like no i'm not going to take that shot because i've got a better you know whatever animal in the past and i don't want to just like kill this animal just to hmm. kill it if i've already got you know a nicer specimen sure um so yeah i did see people not take shots um, because they're just like, I don't want that animal. Um, and there were plenty of instances where there was no shot taken because the animal was female. It was too young. There wasn't a clear shot to be had. Yep. Yep. Rachel, one of the biggest hurdles or pieces of rhetoric that we have to, we typically are tackling every day is that hunters, you're just killers. and you know, from your personal experience and statistics that I know, like we did some some sort of little bit of digging into white-tailed deer. White-tailed deer is the most prolific species hunted in the world, with probably, arguably, the largest hunter population chasing them in the world. That makes sense. And the sense. success rate on killing a deer is like 48% based on license holders and their <laughs> wow. checking in and recording of, of animals. Now. We've had responses to say, well, you guys suck at hunting. Um, but it also speaks to there has to be something else. And in Canada, Canada is like 36% for a deer. And to get a second deer, it's less than 1%. Yes. Which, again, speaks to this idea that there's something else. Right, right. Beyond the kill. Yeah, I, I think I experienced a small taste of that something else when I was in the field, which, um, you know, I had one critic text me being like, why in the world did you have to join a hunt? What was the point of that? But again, you know, preconceived notions, I need to be able to see what at least this end of one example of hunting is actually like, so I can accurately report back on my feelings. Um, you know, this wasn't my vacation. This was someone's family vacation. Um, and they were there as a family, a grandpa, a dad, a fiance and her son. Um, but even so, and these are people also coming, I'll say, from a very different political background and slant than I do. Um, you know, not something I someone I necessarily would be friends with socially, but um, there was this sense of camaraderie in the field that became really palatable by like day three or four, just, you know, these grueling all day treks out into the wilderness and you get back and you have wine around the campfire and exchange stories. Um, and yeah, that just that, that sense of closeness, 
not having, you know, phones to distract us, being able to just talk one-on-one around a campfire. Um, And that's what this hunter told me he's drawn to, just that family time and that bonding and that sort of getting back down to the basics that we so desperately tend to lack here (laughs) in our, you know, hectic, modern (laughs) lives um, with our high-stress jobs and surrounded by concrete and everything else. Um, so I think it is that sort of essence that people must be seeking, at least um, many of them. Many of them, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Rachel, after four years of research, uh, you know, I know maybe people listening to this haven't watched, haven't read the article, and I would certainly suggest them to go read the article, and we'll put the the link to it in our show notes. Wonderful. But after four years of research, after speaking to I don't know how many people you spoke with. Is it of your is it your opinion that trophy hunting and actually before I ask this question, I want to know this question. Did any hunter that you engaged with say that they were actually trophy hunting? Yeah, that's a great question. Um the people I was with said they prefer to just call it hunting. Um I can't remember. Honestly, I'd have to check my mini notes. Um I think I interviewed probably 80 people for this story, so yeah. only a fraction actually appeared. But yeah, I can't confidently say whether anyone said trophy hunting, but I chose to use that term just because yeah, it is it's the familiarity. Term. Correct. You know, I'm, I'm writing for lay readers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's funny because it's it's a it's a to us it's a misused term. Yeah. One that is captured against hunting because nobody goes like you know if you're saying oh i'm going hunting in africa next week no i i'm not going to say never but i haven't heard anyone say oh i'm going trophy hunting in africa next week ah that's so interesting nobody says that yeah it's said that because it's a it's a descriptor on the action of hunting by the person looking at it and it makes Mm -hmm. sense the descriptor is trophy. Yes, you're after the most maturest m- male species of that animal that you're going after. That is the action of the hunt. I, what we prefer to do is, well, let's, we need to change. Not that we can change it now. It's too bastardized of a term now. But I prefer to change the descriptor to be to the consequence of the action, which is conservation oh. hunting, right? You have oh. all these... Oh, right. You know what? I did hear that term. And that's what Deneen, like Deneen would call it, Deneen and Namibia uses conservation hunting. The problem is we'll oh, never be able to adopt conservation hunting because the antis will be like, ah, you're just sticking lipstick on a pig. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. So, but it is the consequence of, of the action. Um, so going back to the original question, after four years, do you think hunting has a role in conservation in Africa? Yes. <laughs> yes, I do. Um, yeah, I mean, that was the whole point of my story. Well, really, um, hunting protects more land right now than national parks and reserves that don't allow hunting do. It's about two-thirds, if I'm remembering correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it occurs in some 23 countries. Taken together, it protects an area of land I think it's as big or larger than Texas. You know, it's a huge, huge area. And yes, there are problems with the industry. Uh, You know, it's very easy to find egregious examples of rules being broken. Um, 
But at the same time, some sources argued to me that even if those rules are being broken in certain areas, that wild land is still being kept in place. It's not being developed as far for farmlands or you know villages or new infrastructure pro- projects. So at least the land is there. So in the future, hopefully, we can come back in and actually manage those areas correctly. Because once that land is lost, it's lost. It's going to be really hard to mm-hmm. claw it back and do a whole you know ecological restoration program. And that's the biggest threat to Africa today is development of land being lost for wildlife. So yes, there's examples of um, populations of certain species being depleted by hunting, especially carnivores. Um, but more than that, there's examples of populations being grown by responsible, sustainable hunting. Mm-hmm. So yeah, is the, the short answer is yes. Yeah, it's, it's, it's something we champion almost daily in terms of what we do at Blood Origins. All, you know, we just are, we're a, non, a small nonprofit that's interested in conveying the truth about hunting. Obviously, with a science framework and a little bit of an emotional lens thrown over the top of it. Um, to really just say this is the truth. Like, don't be afraid to be honest. Yeah, yeah, there are fat, rich Americans that go to Africa and all they like to do is pose with dead lions. Okay. Yep. I get it. Right? Yep. Do we prefer them not to be doing that and posting about it? Sure. But the money that they just put into the system had significant consequences. It Whereby, had- if you took that away, what would you have? Cattle? Would you prefer cattle? Goats? Yeah, exactly. Agriculture, like you said? Yeah. And I mean, it's really distressing to see just the the rage and the pushback against this, um, just the absolute antipathy toward it. But that rage isn't matched by dollars. You know, okay, if you want to conserve the land, that's cool. But like, how are you going to pay for it? Um, and it's like people aren't thinking, you know, that, that one extra step. What's going to happen when the trophy hunting disappears? Um, and I mean, that, that was also what the story was really about, just how much of a threat is posed to conservation in Africa as the industry does decline because of these various um, social and economic forces. Yeah, it's certainly, you know, the, the population of Africa is burgeoning. Right now, I, yeah. I don't think it even has met its exponential peak yet. Oh, no, it's going to um, get huge. Um, I think 2050 is currently predicted for the, the peak, and by then it's going to be the most populous continent on the planet. Yeah, and think about the pressure on the resource, right? The pressure on, and, and look, from their perspective, they're like, well, we need to feed our people, okay. just like America did. Exactly. 150 years ago, 200 years ago, just like Europe did. But they've got this abundant wildlife that is like, well, how do you, how do you marry the two things together? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I wish we lived in a world where animals and people could just coexist and things didn't cost money. But, you know, right now that's not the world we live in. And I just wish we could all kind of wake up and face reality on this particular issue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Rachel, I know that um, you have got vacation in your in your in your front view mirror and that's six hours away ah yeah the clock is ticking gonna get on that plane and uh, go do things in ibiza (laughs) um look i appreciate your time i appreciate you figuring out your technological um savviness 
<laughs> Thank you for bearing with me. I'm like, if anything, horrible in technology. And please don't hesitate to reach out if we can ever do anything for you. Um, thank you. Again, like I started, thank you from, for tackling such a thorny subject and tackling it with such objectivity. Um, and I think even if, I'll say this, even if you had come out with, I don't think hunting is as great as the hunters say it is, I think I would still have asked you to be on the podcast because I think just like you experienced, if there's an opportunity, and I've said this to many, many anti-hunters or people that are like, ah, oh, I just don't, I just don't get it. Uh -huh. Firstly, come on a podcast with me and you can ask me anything you want. I'll be completely honest with you. Just tell me, ask me a question and I'll answer it. For instance, I had an 18-year-old girl out of Kenya uh -huh. say to me, I don't get the, the, the point of your Instagram. <laughs> Like, Interesting. I was that's like, a, um, that's a comment. I was like, I was like, and I had to, I tried to explain. She's like, I just don't get hunting. And I said, well, why don't you come on the podcast and ask me? And Rachel, I kid you not, her perspective was so skewed that she believed Americans came to Africa to kill an elephant to then be able to sell the ivory for $50,000. Oh, a kilo. Jesus. Wow. I wow. was like, it's like that that's illegal. Like that doesn't happen. Yeah. Or that there was no wildlife left in America. That's why they were coming to Africa to kill their wildlife. Wow. Yeah. There's a lot of misinformation out there. Uh you know. So I, I, just... I will oh, I will say, no, you just saying that it did remind me of um the hunter the professional hunter I joined, Lauren Ramoni. I mean, he just repeated over and over, you know, anyone can just like come out here, see what we're doing, you know, talk to us. And I just think people, a lot of people are not willing to even have that conversation, but I yep. wish they would. Yep. I really the do. The door's totally open, completely open all the time mm -hmm. to just ask questions. And then, as you just said, places like lawns, uh -huh. there's, there's, I have places in every country that hunts in Africa that are like opening their doors. If you have a question, if you want to go see what they do, right. go see it. Form your own opinion versus just sitting back and, you know, throwing rocks from your armchair. Um, yes. But that's, yeah. that's today's world, unfortunately. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Rachel, thank you. I really, really thank appreciate you so your much. time. Yeah, really glad and, we uh, had the opportunity to chat. Don't hesitate to reach out if you need anything. Definitely. Well, thank you for spreading word about the story. I hope some of your listeners will check it out and, you know, syndicate it. It's, it's out there for anyone to use. 100%. Thanks. Awesome. Thank you. Well, that's it for today. Appreciate you listening. As always, leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting.